0: Shabbat Shalom, Shana Tova! (laughs) Chaval al de'avdin ve'la mishtachin Alas, for those who have gone and are no longer to be found. A lament the Talmud instructs us to say when a great person dies with nobody to replace them. A lament that I recited upon hearing of the death of Rabbi Harold Kushner this past spring at the age of 88. To his beloved Temple Israel community in Natick, Massachusetts, over the course of his decades-long career, Rabbi Kushner was a wise, compassion-filled pastor and communal leader, a rabbi's rabbi, a mentor to those who knew him well and to those like me who only knew them from afar, a generational role model to the wider world, Rabbi Kushner was the author of over a dozen books. Most famously, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, a multi-million copy bestseller translated into countless languages and the most frequently distributed book by clergy, myself included, to those seeking guidance after having experienced personal tragedy. Kushner wrote the book as a young rabbi, following the death of his son, Aaron, from the degenerative premature aging disease, progeria. In tribute to Kushner, over the course of the holidays, my colleagues and I will refer to Kushner's writing, exploring his response to the problem of evil, his counsel on overcoming fear, and his insightful and original readings of the texts of our tradition. For the moment, I want to focus neither on Kushner's career, nor on any of his books, but on what he said to his native congregation the high holidays following the death of his son. One can only imagine what it must have felt like for him to speak that day in 1978. One can only imagine what it must have felt like sitting in the pews waiting to hear the rabbi speak of his personal loss. But the text that Kushner drew from that day was neither the Book of Job nor Augustine nor any other philosophical meditation on theodicy, the problem of evil. That day he began as only Kushner could with a story. A story that he described as a children's story for grown-ups, The Missing Piece by Shel Silverstein. Once upon a time, there was a circle that was missing a piece, and it was very unhappy. It went all over the world looking for its missing piece over hills and across rivers, up mountains and down valleys through rain and snow and blistering sun. It went looking for its missing piece. And wherever it went, because, well, it was missing a piece, it had to go very, very slowly. So it went along, it stopped to look at the flowers and talk to the butterflies It stopped to rest in the cool grass. Sometimes it passed a snail, and sometimes the snail passed it, and wherever it went, it kept looking for its missing piece. But it couldn't find it. Some pieces were too big, and some were too small. Some were too square, and some were too pointy. None of them fit. Then suddenly, one day, it found a piece that seemed to fit perfectly. The piece, the circle was whole again. Nothing was missing. It took the piece into itself, and it started to roll away. And now, because it was a whole, unbroken circle, it could roll much, much faster, and so it rolled quickly throughout the world, past the lakes and past the forests, too fast to get a look at them. It rolled too quickly to notice the flowers, too fast for any of the insects to fly by and talk to it. And when the circle realized that it was rolling too fast to do any of the things that it had been doing all those years, it stopped. It very reluctantly put down its missing piece, and it rolled away, heading out into the world, looking for its missing piece. It's a beautiful story in a beautiful sermon. Kushner never actually made mention of his son. The Silverstein story was his way to speak about that which he wasn't able to or wasn't yet ready to talk about. On that day, Kushner sought neither to explain why bad things happen to good people or what to do when bad things inevitably do happen to good people. Kushner's observation was simply that bad things do happen to good people all the time. It could be the loss of a loved one, but it could also be a broken heart. It could be a failed or failing relationship. It could be a financial setback, substance abuse, the loss of mobility, or the challenges associated with fertility and starting a family. Everybody has a missing piece. It's part and parcel to the human condition. But then then Kushner went on to make a second point, a point to which we shall soon enough turn back to. Not just that we're all missing a piece but that it is in that missing piece that we somehow become whole. In Kushner's own words, we're more complete if we're incomplete. To roll through this world without defect, as a circle of Silverstein's story did for a time, is to miss all that life has to offer. For Kushner, the goal in life is not to be perfect, but by way of acknowledging our missing pieces, perfectly human, a thought as paradoxical as it is provocative. Today is Rosh Hashanah, the day upon which the first human being was created. The day tradition teaches is filled with possibility and new beginnings. There's sanctity to this day. We dress in our finest, the music beautiful, the synagogue tip top, our tradition transcendent. To you, your loved ones, the Jewish people, and all of humanity, I pray that this year be a year of sweetness, health, and peace. But notwithstanding our high hopes and aspirations, we do the holidays and ourselves a disservice if we believe that our goal is to enter some sort of fairy tale or Edenic paradise. In fact, the calendrical calculus of the day is just the opposite, not to enter Eden, But to leave Eden, according to the rabbinic timeline, today was not the day that the world was created. That happened on the 25th day of the final Hebrew month of Elul, six days ago. Today, Rosh Hashanah is actually the sixth day of creation, the day that not only Adam and Eve were created, but the day that they ate of the fruit of the garden and by day's end had left the garden. Today is the day that we stand east of Eden, the scar tissue on our rib still raw something missing inside, vulnerable and mortal, the drama of the human story just beginning. It's not, I readily admit, how we normally brand the high holidays. Come to synagogue and be reminded of your missing piece. But like those optical illusions containing an embedded image, it's a pattern that becomes impossible to unsee once you've seen it. The high holiday moths are reminding us that we're all broken shards. Our world is good, tov, but far from Mushlam or Tom, whole or perfect. The primary symbol of the day, which incidentally we didn't blow, the shofar, its staccato sound echoing the bitter cry of a broken soul. That is what shvarim actually means, broken pieces. Consider the Torah readings associated with today. The first family of our people are anything but perfect. Sarah's infertility measuring her own condition against that of Hagar and the jealousies that ensued, the pitfalls of blended families and the sibling rivalry between Isaac and Ishmael, Abraham binding his son on the altar, a warrior of faith perhaps, but not exactly an exemplar of good parenting. There is drama, there is trauma, there is family dysfunction, and every narrative seems to share... The unsettling feature that none of them tie up neatly in a bow. Why read these stories and not tales of beauty, love, heroism, and reconciliation? You might have your answer, but mine is that they're intended to be the literary prisms enabling the missing pieces of our own lives to come into focus. If the thinking goes, our founding matriarchs and patriarchs experience loss, jealousy, frailty, and alienation. Why should we believe that we're any different? What's the point of these high holidays? As a cantor's prayer just reminded us, Hineni, here I am, deficient in deeds, trembling before God in my humanity. Today we're reminded that you, me, all of us are anything but perfect. Important as the observation may be that we're all missing a piece. On a certain level, it's self-evident. It's an insight of no great revelation. We all know we have defects, and if we don't, some of us lucky ones have our spouses to point them out to us. (laughs) Missing pieces, I get. But what I don't get, the thing that weighs on me today that I want to explore with you, is Kushner's contention that it is in our missing pieces that we are made whole. Kushner's words are not complicated. We're more complete if we're incomplete. I've heard more than one rabbi quote, the Kod Rebbe who taught, there's nothing more whole than a broken heart. I know the Leonard Cohen lyric about how there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. I understand the words. I just don't get them. When people suffer loss, they feel less complete, not more. When people are missing a piece, They feel less whole, not more. At best, it's a cliched tautology. At worst, it's a thought that risks being dismissive of a person's pain. Kushner was as wise and compassionate as they come, and he knew loss firsthand. What did he mean when he said we are more complete if we're incomplete? One answer might be that Kushner understood that our world suffers from what some refer to as a tyranny of perfection. The toxic notion to quote the prophet of the summer Barbie, that it is the best day ever, so was yesterday, so is tomorrow and every day from now until forever. A tyranny of perfection that discourages people from being forthcoming in their humanity. You wanna know what the most charged moment of my rabbinate is? It has nothing to do with high holiday seats, or intermarriage, or b'nai mitzvah dates. It's the moment that happens at least once a year when a parent in our early childhood barges into my office, bypassing every layer of management, demanding the head of the ECC director on a platter because one of the teachers had the nerve to suggest that their child has differentiated needs, needs extra help, or maybe, just maybe, can't be served by our school. The pastoral dynamic is textbook. A young parent's myth of their child's perfection has been shattered and someone's gonna pay. (laughs) As the parent of now college-age children, were someone to tell me that my kid is perfect, I would tell them that they have the wrong kid. But that myth of our children's perfection, it's hard to let it go. In their academics, their athletics, their body image, their relationships, their professional ambitions, by way of our disapproval and disappointment, we inflict a suffocating expectation of perfection, no doubt reflecting our own insecurities on the very people in this world who should know that they can always turn to us in all their missing pieces with unconditional acceptance. Our digital world does not lack for the tools to make people feel less than. The parties we're not invited to, the vacations we're not on, the clothes that we don't fit into, the colleges we're not accepted to, the shanda of a shaming culture wrought by the instant public and permanent record of social media. There is something so unforgiving about the society in which we and our children live and the untold toll it takes Our inability to be our authentic selves. Maybe that's what Kushner meant when he said, We're more complete if we're incomplete. We need to make space for the imperfections of others, a counter cultural message in a world that would deny us the space to be fully human and thus whole. A second possibility connected to the first is that perhaps Kushner wasn't talking about other people, but about each one of us that we need to name our missing pieces if we are to become whole. Perhaps Kushner thought that were we to do so, our relationships can be strengthened one to the other. This past summer, a low-level controversy erupted in the Cosgrove family. My parents, whom I'm delighted are here from Los Angeles, are recently retired and my brothers and I began to explore creating a family history, a chance to get the Cosgrove story on record. One of my brothers thought to throw some shackles to an out-of-work Hollywood writer, of which there are plenty, to draft their story. Another brother suggested that we hire an out-of-work videographer, of which there are plenty for an oral history. I, I'm entirely agnostic on the medium. My concern lies elsewhere. Who's gonna conduct the interview? A professional? A child? A grandchild? After all, I know because I know that there are all sorts of stories that need to be on record. Nothing page six worthy, just the usual stuff. Some losses along the way, a few relatives nobody likes to talk about, and the romances that preceded my parents meeting each other. I'm reminded of Goldstein who asked his beloved Sadie if he has been the only one that she's ever been with, to which Sadie responded, yes, Abe, all the others were nines and tens. I want to make sure that the good stuff, you don't get it, it's okay. I want to make sure that all the good stuff is documented. The stuff without which my parents wouldn't be my parents and my family, not my family. But when I asked my folks about it, their response, and you know where this is going, cue the English accent, absolutely not, Elliot. Those stories are never to be told. Leave well enough alone. Let sleeping dogs lie. In Hollywood terms, the Cosgrove Family Project remains stuck in development. And and before I get disowned, I do acknowledge that there is a statute of limitations on certain things. Not every story needs to be told or should be. And yes, in some instances, repression and denial have their place. When it comes to memory, we need not be masochists. But I also think that there is self-knowledge, healing, growth, and even wholeness to be had in speaking about our losses, the job that we didn't get the relationship that didn't take, the hurt that we endured, all those times that we had to reset. In sharing those stories, we become more human, not less. Sharing that which we are missing doesn't make us miss it any less, but at least as taught by the wisdom of the Shiva house, we take comfort in knowing that we are not alone. When we admit to our loved ones that we too have experienced an oscillating life of ups and downs, sorrow and setback, frailty and failure. It teaches them that when they do, which they will, not only are they not the first to do so, not only can they still turn to us and be loved, but they too can bounce back. Maybe that's what Kushner meant, that it's by way of our missing pieces that we should connect one to the other and thus become whole. A third and final possibility is that maybe Kushner believed that in loss, were granted wisdom. A silver lining, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger theory of loss, that it teaches us to appreciate life. Kushner was fond of quoting by way of his teacher, Rabbi Mordechai Waxman of blessed memory, the Greek tale of the waters of Lethe. The legend tells us that when a person dies, he or she goes to the river that is the boundary between the land of the living and the no longer living. The boatmen whose task it is to ferry the souls across the river would tell the new arrivals that they were entitled to drink of the waters of Lethe, the waters of forgetfulness, before they crossed over. If they drank, they would forget everything that had happened to them on earth. They would forget the painful moments, but also the pleasant ones. They would forget the pain of illness and loss, but also the joys of health and love. It would be as if they had never tasted life. If they chose not to drink, they'd be left with those memories for eternity. According to the tale, almost no one, no matter how bitter their days had been, chose to drink of the waters of Lethe. Put another way, we cannot have the honey without the sting, love without loss. It's the missing pieces that make us who we are. There are, no doubt, other answers, other ways to understand Kushner, but truth be told, none of them really satisfy. The Talmud relates that when the great sage Rabbi Chia fell ill, his colleague Rabbi Yochanan asked Rabbi Chia if his sufferings were dear to him, meaning was he grateful for any of the wisdom that came by way of his suffering? And Rabbi Chia responded, lohen ve neither the sufferings nor their reward. I understand Rabbi Chia's rejection of the lemonade from lemons theory of pain. Don't leave me to the brokenhearted. I want neither the honey nor the sting. God bless the Kotzker Rabbi, but a broken heart does not make me whole. It was time to use my lifeline, and I decided to go directly to the source, or as close to the source as I could. I began by telling you that Rabbi Kushner lost his son, but what I didn't mention is that his daughter, Ariel, is alive and well living in Massachusetts. She's an accomplished ceramicist. An artist who spends her days shaping clay on a potter's wheel. So I reached out to Ariel, hoping to understand the inner life and ongoing legacy of her late father to see if she had any insight on what he meant when he said that we're more complete when we're incomplete. What was I missing? Perhaps Kushner's daughter could shed light on Rabbi Kushner. Ariel could not have been more gracious in receiving my call. I think. I think she appreciated the opportunity to speak of her father as she anticipated her first high holiday since his passing she still lives 10 minutes from her father's synagogue and her mother had passed in 2022 Ariel was girding herself to enter her father's sanctuary on the first high holidays without either parent living we spoke for some time and Ariel shared with me the manner by which her father prepared for the holidays by writing his sermons the humanity he brought to his pastoral care, and the gratification he took in the knowledge that his books helped so many through difficult chapters of their lives. She explained that despite being an accomplished preacher and a public persona, at his core, her father was a quiet person with a rich inner life. I explained to her that I was trying to understand the High Holiday sermon after her brother's death and her father's decision to read Silverstein's Missing piece, And there was a long pause on the phone. Perhaps I feared my question was too intrusive. Ariel regrouped and explained to me that, familiar as she was with her father's sermons and books, truth be told, she had never put two and two together, never registered that it was that sermon, that sermon that he gave following the death of Aaron. What she did know was that as her father traversed The journey from nursing to hospice care to the world to come, his ability to communicate waned. And so Ariel decided, as many may do, to read to her father. The time for complex prose and philosophy had long since passed. So she turned to the bookshelf, and there in her father's library, her eye caught a children's book, The Missing Piece. She pulled it off the shelf and began to read it to him and he stirred, and he began to engage. And they began, even as her father grew less lucid, to read the book together. Had she pulled the book from the shelf because she knew without knowing that it gestured the presence of her brother, her father's son? Did she read it as a nod to her mother's recent death, or perhaps her father's imminent passing? an unspoken acknowledgment of the missing piece that awaited, Ariel knew not the answer. She just held the image close. Father and daughter, daughter and father, all their missing pieces present in the room. It was, to say the very least, a very moving, almost mystical exchange. But my question had yet to be answered. How are we, by way of our missing pieces, supposed to be made whole? What did her father mean when he said, We're more complete if we're incomplete? Once again, Ariel paused. And with a pastoral touch undoubtedly passed on to her by her father, she responded to me with a warmth of spirit and word. She explained that she was neither a rabbi nor a philosopher, nor for that matter did she believe that it was her place to speak of her father's theological legacy. She was a ceramicist. Her days spent shaping clay and it would be in those terms that she could respond to my question. When one works at a potter's wheel, she explained one can trim, clip, shape, and refine the clay working to make everything perfectly symmetrical and without blemish. But she continued that there's another aesthetic by which to approach her craft of Eastern origin, wabi-sabi, that teaches otherwise. By this method, the artist endeavors to accept that which is imperfect, impermanent, and incomplete in this world. By this approach, One still sits, focused at the potter's wheel with intention, but makes space for imperfection and asymmetry. One coils the clay, but does so with human hands, seeing in each fingerprint not imperfection, but artistry. One presses and molds and strikes the clay, knowing that in doing so, one's fingerprints necessarily leave a mark but that it is in those marks that form and beauty and wholeness are to be found given the choice of being complete or incomplete I would choose complete I desire neither the suffering nor the reward associated with loss But given that the choice is not mine to make, given that frailty and loss and missing pieces are part of the human experience, there is still a choice to make. Will we choose to see the fingerprints, the marks and the fingerprints of our marks as part of the enduring beauty of this world? Will they teach us that we are here on earth to live purposeful lives filled with gratitude, appreciation, tradition, friendship, community, and humility? Will they remind us that life, like pottery, is fragile and it can shatter without notice, so we must treat each other, ourselves, and this world with sensitivity and care? If the heavenly potter, God, God's self, can't create a perfect world, then why in the world should we believe that either we or any of our creations are perfect? So let's spend this year and every year of our lives treating ourselves and our loved ones with a spirit of generosity, forgiveness, integrity, and understanding. Can we be more complete when we're incomplete? Maybe Rabbi Kushner had the answer. Me? I don't know. I still struggle the staccato cry of shvarim has yet to be replaced by the unbroken call of tekiah I look forward to the day that it does I believe that it will we must all believe that it will and until that day comes we have the choice my choice I choose to leave fingerprints of love life and faith wherever I can Marks of beauty on every inch of this imperfect world in which we live. Shana tova. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out pasyn.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah, beck of di show, hallelujah, hallelujah.